do you consider yourself a space lawyer? No, in fact, I have a little bit of the opportunity to uh, be a free agent when it comes to talking about certain legal principles, since uh, I don't have to offend any of my clients to do it. Of course, if I claim to be a lawyer, I think it is a felony in at least 49 of the 50 states, so uh, I'm glad we could clarify that. Nathan Johnson, and in each episode, I interview professionals in space law and policy to try and find out exactly what that means. First, a disclaimer. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast do not represent the views or opinions of any of my past, present, or future employers or clients. Today, I am joined by Dr. Michael Simpson. Well, my name is Michael Simpson, and uh, currently uh, recently retired from the Secure World Foundation. I continue to work as a professor of policy and space law at uh, the International Space University, and am serving as the managing director of the in International Institute of Space Commerce. Excellent. Thank you, Michael. Let me start with the first question that I ask all of my guests do you consider yourself a space lawyer? No, in fact, uh, I'm not a member of the bar. I've been a teacher of international law for almost 40 years, however, and so I have a little bit of the opportunity to uh, uh, be a free agent when it comes to talking about certain legal principles, since uh, I don't have to offend any of my clients to do it. <laughs> So you, you have a certain freedom of speech that maybe right. people who carry the title lawyer don't necessarily get to have. Well, and of course, if I claim to be a lawyer, I think it is a felony in at least 49 of the 50 states. So uh, I'm glad we could clarify that. Yes, absolutely. Let's start above board at the beginning. So as somebody who has free reign to share their opinions without offending any potential clients, what does space law mean to you? How do you define it as a, a concept or a field? Well, I think it is a pretty broad field in that it describes, on the one hand, the relationship of nation states in their actions in space, particularly these days in Earth orbit, but also involving a longer distance spaceflight. But it also reflects a large body of municipal law that governs the way uh, citizens of a country are required to behave in their attempts to go to space, their attempts to use space, and their uh, interactions um, in space. So it has the the joy of 
having substantial amounts of conflict of laws uh, <laughs> discussion within it. And it uh, also has this interesting principle or interesting element that it is unique, I believe, among uh, elements of um, both municipal and international law in that there really is no opus of case law um, surrounding it. There's a little bit in the application of municipal law principles, but in international law, there's never been a case. And so talking about it is a bit more challenging since you have no case law to refer to. Yeah, and I find that when you're talking to the general public, some people are confused by that aspect of it. Well, how can you have a body of law if it hasn't ever been used before? And they see the idea of it appearing in a court case to be its only use. But we've had space law for 50 years, and it has had a substantial effect on activity for the past 50 years, even though it's never come into contention before a court. Well, in fact, uh, at the very least, the uh, agreement in the Outer Space Treaty to not make a claim of sovereignty off Earth um, has operated to the extent that the three, arguably the three most powerful countries uh, in the world, Russia, China, and the United States, have all had what in the 19th century and before would have been a claim to the moon. And nobody's attempted to exercise it, although there are few people out there now worried that um, somebody might. But the reality is there has not been such a claim in part because of the Outer Space Treaty and because law is far more than enforcement. It's also a set of agreements that you comply with because you don't want other people not to comply with them. And that is uh, certainly held space law together since the Outer Space Treaty. Sort of a, a mutually assured rule of law concept. Yeah, you know, uh, a mutually assured confidence, maybe. Uh, a sense that um, as long as we are reasonably attentive to the big pieces of our agreements, uh, we can expect that other people who have made those agreements with us will also be reasonably attentive to them. Yeah, I think I think in, in large part, given that just a couple of years ago, we had the 50th anniversary of the signing of the Outer Space Treaty, I think people did say that, yeah, it's it stood up pretty well over 50 years for for that purpose. Um, but now the hot topic is, is it adequate for the next 50 years? Because the, the conflict, the exact conflict in 1967 is not the same exact conflict that we have today. There are, there's at least one more superpower and there's sort of different global outlook on the potential for private activity in outer space as well. Well, yes, although I think we need to keep in mind that the Outer Space Treaty was a treaty on principles, and that point's getting made more and more since the 50th anniversary as people recognize that element. It's not, it's not a statute. Um, it is a statement of principles. Replacing it, as many people will occasionally argue is necessary, 
is far more complicated than we might imagine. Uh, there are over 115 ratifications on it now. And so to have another document that is broad as broadly accepted as the Outer Space Treaty with substantially new elements to it will be very challenging. And I don't think we have any right to assume that in the early days of its drafting, we will have nearly the consensus in favor of it that we have in favor of the current document. Um, and I, I think if we think about the Outer Space Treaty more as an organic document, as a kind of constitutional document, we recognize that we have elaborated three elements of that treaty in subsequent somewhat more detailed treaties, the rescue and return agreement, of course, and the registration agreement have had a pretty, pretty substantial support, the liability convention. What probably is needed is, is some more detailed agreements, and those detailed agreements um, may not be treaties. I think there are, in this argument between hard law and soft law, there are a lot of people who are beginning to say, you know, even the treaties aren't hard law. Maybe what we really need are coordinated uh, municipal law statutes where we know how to enforce municipal law and where the agreements are not to create a treaty, but to have similar language in national legislation. And that that may well be a more productive near-term means of developing space law than, uh, than treaties, which are showing themselves to be hellaciously difficult to negotiate. And, and where the Moon Agreement indicates that finding a new consensus at the next level may be, may be difficult. You know, I, I, I've, I've cited with students the interesting example of coordinated space law of saying, just imagine what it would mean for space debris mitigation if only Russia, China, and the United States agreed on a real coordinated set of principles for reducing the production of space debris and maybe later doing something to eliminate some of the stuff that's already up there. But just if those three countries came up with a concrete agreement among themselves, didn't involve anyone else in the world, didn't obligate anyone else in the world, we would have uh, about 80% or more of the debris on orbit already under a uh, legal regime that was enforceable in the courts of only three countries. And it would have a rather substantial impact, uh, more so maybe than a very general treaty about how beautiful it would be to have a, a planet without rings. And that's just part of this effort to think about the law in terms that are bigger than just the individual statutes and the individual principles documents, but, but where there are solutions if there were political willingness. And so we get maybe closer to the area where, you know, my expertise is greater, and that is public policy, and policy and law really are joined at the hip.
And that brings me to my next question. I, I want to talk about your experiences that give you this perspective. You talked about international consensus building, development of rules. How how did you get interested in this field of space law and policy on this international scale? Can you remember if you walk back in your career, when was the first incident that really got you on this path? Well, I mean, we're going back uh, a ways. I, you know, I'd have to look at my stone tablet. Just, uh, but uh, in fact, I, I often share with people that I have a very very strong memory of standing on the front lawn of my house with my mother and my father. I couldn't have been uh, maybe eight. Um, how old was I? Yeah, eight probably. And looking, looking up at the sky at what we thought was Sputnik and now know was probably the um, insertion orbital insertion stage that was big enough to reflect some light and watching it go over and my parents were extraordinarily positive about that you know this they they said you know this is very important to you mike this is your future you know we're we're about to do things that people only dreamed about even 10 years ago and and remember this was a russian spacecraft going overhead dad had served in the navy you know mom mom actually had some russian roots but also like many uh, immigrant families they weren't too happy with the current then current russian leadership and or regime and the next day I go to school and almost everybody is negative about what they saw. Oh, this is the beginning of World War III. The Russians are going to do horrible things to us. Uh, this means they could drop bombs on us that they launch from inside Russia. And, and I was a bit surprised by that. And over the course of the next probably 10 or so years, uh, what, what I really did was think more and more about the message I'd first heard, that this really had some potential to change the way human beings lived, operated, communicated, thought about their place in the universe, all those wonderful things. And so like a lot of kids, I wanted to be an astronaut. I got far too tall to ever fit in anything that they launched to space. And, and sort of drifted away from space, but stayed interested in the political environment of this relationship between Soviet Union and the United States and this entire complicated world. And went into political science, went into academic administration. And one day I get a call from the International Space University saying, look, we need somebody who's run a school before and who would like to uh, take the ISU to a, the next level. And it was like a dream come true. I get back into the space community, but in particular, I get back into it with a very strong grounding in public policy and international law and found that I was with a whole bunch of other people who were thinking about the rules that ought to apply and the conditions of of national interaction that ought to apply in this environment that we had not yet reduced to battlefield. And between ISU and my subsequent job as 
executive director of the Secure World Foundation, I was right in the middle of this nexus of policy and law. Did a lot of work with the UN. I continue to do what I can do to help the process of developing Space 2030. And we, and I recognized that here was a chance to work in an area where a policy specialist didn't have to try to fix what was broken as much as to preserve which had remained whole, that which had remained whole. And for all the challenges we have in outer space and for all the fear we hear uh, uh, from people about what could happen, the reality is we've managed not to throw a punch at each other from spacecraft to spacecraft in over 60 years of having the capability of doing nasty things to each other. So that's that's been fairly exciting. And whether it's going to stay like that or not stay like that may depend not so much on the inevitability that some people suggest for a space conflict as it is on the willingness of political leadership to recognize that if it hasn't happened in 60 years, it doesn't have to happen in the next 60 years. And it's probably going to require somebody to make it happen if that's what they want and why they would want that is still a mystery to me. <laughs> My uh, Texan namesake, President Johnson's fear never came true of, of them dropping rocks from orbit. Right to us, yeah. And you know, we proposed doing something similar. We had this weird notion of rods from God, or some weird uh, notion that we were going to put uh, um, pieces of um, of uh, metal in uh, orbit and then deorbit them over an enemy that would just basically think they were being attacked by astro by by pieces of space rock and affect a kinetic weapon and where you know where these ideas come from who knows but uh, human beings it cannot look at all human beings have historically had trouble looking at any object and not considering how they could turn it into a weapon and that is who knows maybe it's hardwired in us but we are also capable of looking at the thing that could be a weapon and turning it into a piece of art. And so be nice to find a way to make the latter motivation more common than the former. Law tends to follow behavior. It, it doesn't tend to precede behavior. And I, you know, I sit as the vice chair of the Hague International Space Resources Governance Working Group, which is quite a mouthful. And we, we have looked at this issue in a community that includes people who love the moon agreement, people hate the moon agreement, and that that has led us nonetheless to this notion of adaptive governance, that we need to learn more about what the real issues are before we have the hubris to make rules that will cover them. And I mean, it's hardly a discovery for the most part. That's the way law has developed. You know, think about Lex Commercialis and the Hanseatic League. And I, it was a set of rules that evolved until until 
local sovereigns basically agreed that that set of rules would be incorporated in a arrangement where the sovereign agreed that they would apply. And, and then, of course, over time they evolved. But it wasn't like some prince sat down one day and started drafting a set of rules for a business environment. The rules really emerged from the business environment. And uh, that was true with the law of the sea. It's been true with quite a number of other legal developments as well, that the rules emerged as practice guided people to design them. And where common experience basically made it clear, yeah, maybe we ought to have a clear understanding about which way a ship turns or which ship turns as it's you have two on a collision course uh, you know that the kind of stuff is sort of not as easy to come up with if you're doing it ab initio right from the beginning yeah and i mean thinking about it sputnik was 1959 1957 sputnik was October 1957th 1957 and then the Outer Space Treaty itself was being negotiated at a time where you could project the programs that the United States and Russia were working on to get to the moon. So even though we hadn't landed on the moon yet, it was it was easy to see that these programs were on track and that, yes, you were going to get to the moon very soon and you might want these rules in place by the time you yeah, get and, and keep in mind that was an extraordinarily busy decade from 1957 to 1967. Uh, the UN Committee on the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space was officially formed in 1959. It was formed as an ad hoc group in 1958 already looking at the broader issues of space, even the launch of Sputnik and uh, four months later, the launch of the U.S. spacecraft uh, Explorer 1 were hardly accidental. It was the International Geophysical Year. They, they Both countries had said they wanted to do that. And the Russians pulled off the feet first. The United States pulled off a data gathering satellite first. There was actually data gathered by Explorer 1. Sputnik communicated, but it didn't, it didn't have any data gathering capability on it. And, and from that, there was just this regular leapfrogging of capabilities. Uh, the Russians get to orbit with a human being. Uh, the U.S. follows a couple of years later with getting uh, to orbit with uh, John Glenn. We, uh, we see the development of orbital rendezvous capabilities. The Russians successfully pull off a, a spacewalk. The, the United States develops a technique for training spacewalkers that's now used pretty well worldwide. And, and all of this is part of what was obvious from 1961 on in Kennedy's speech at Rice University that there was a race to the moon going on. The Soviet Union and the United States both wanted to get to the moon first. They very much feared that the other would militarize the moon in some way and therefore put the other at a disadvantage. And by the time we get to 1967, there's that clear political goal to avoid a claim to, of the moon 
But there are also all sorts of other elements in that treaty that reflect the scientific capabilities, the launching capabilities, the extraordinarily rapid advance of space technology that was going on. And and so, you know, we enter this world where future generations of space lawyers absolutely need to not be technophobic. They don't need to be engineers. They don't need to be scientists, but they absolutely have to be willing to take a hard look at the underlying technology and understand it in general better than the average citizen because you can't make rules for something you have no understanding of. And that's an interesting part of space law that you know, I sort of first saw when I was president at International Space University, and there were a number of super smart, legally trained people who came to us who struggled with the science and engineering, but then left the school with their diplomas, recognizing that there was nothing about their brain that was incapable of understanding this stuff. Maybe they didn't have talent to compute a slingshot orbit, but they certainly were able to understand gravitational assist. And that meant that they understood some of the potential for getting to places that we had previously not thought practical to get to. And that, I think, will be very important later in their careers as we start doing more and more technologically challenging things to extend the capacity of at least robotic exploration. I'll admit in law school, I took as many credits as I was allowed to in classes outside the law school. I took an emergency emergency medicine school class on human health and space. And then I tried to take an engineering class on orbital mechanics. I, I, did the homework for a home in transfer orbit, but I quickly realized that for two credits, it was going to be a little bit above my head. So <laughs> I stopped the engineering class at that point. But again, understanding the principles behind things and being able to say this client or this technology that I'm going to be working on right now, I can take the time to figure out enough of it to know what I need to know about it. Right. Yeah, and and frankly, I'm not saying that I think that space lawyers need to be engineers or scientists, although I think just as in medicine you have, you know, forensic doctors and uh, medically trained lawyers, there's still a very small set of the of the total, but you do need to recognize that simply sitting through a discussion of a mission that has substantial technological issues involved is without understanding the underlying discussion is is not helpful to the production of rules or the application of existing rules. And you've also mentioned a few of the current issues that people bring up. We've already mentioned orbital debris mitigation, if not even active orbital orbital debris removal. I know that we have a couple of companies, commercial companies, who are starting to pitch themselves on that capability. Yeah, and and although I think active debris removal is still much more challenging technically than is debris 
reduction, that is uh, the reduction of the production of debris. It's an interesting problem legally because uh, any technique that could deorbit debris could also deorbit a satellite. And so you have this problem of dual use that comes into play that you, um, let's say you develop a, um, a laser ablation technique that's designed to create an effect thrust and light pressure to bring down a piece of debris. Well, you aim that same device at an active satellite, you could blind it, you could deorbit it depending upon the energy level of the of the laser you're talking about and therefore you would have a weapon in orbit and of course uh, with all the concerns that 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 presents and so it, it just as the legal profession in many countries has as much to do about mediating disputes so that they don't have to come to court. I think the legal profession of the near future and probably well out uh, into the future, dealing with space law is going to be about finding ways to keep people from conflict. And that probably will be by finding ways to build confidence and transparency into relationships between countries, but also between other active entities in uh, in space and a lot of that will initially be uh, rules about the way we share earth orbit and how we allocate access to earth orbit and how we develop habits of behavior that are conducive to not contaminating Earth orbit with useless pieces of, of junk that get in the way of of new creative innovative ways to to use space technology so for for all those many people who are interested in the law but really don't see themselves as litigators here's a here's a hopeful opportunity to realize that they can be solution finders in part by finding ways to work within general principles of law that can create synergies among various actors in space or at the very least can create mutual activities which are not mutually interfering and that that would already go a long way to to improve future access to space and provides just one more pathway to the use of uh, legal reasoning and legal training to facilitate an increased human experience of space. And let's use that as a segue to our final lightning round of questions. What advice would you give to a student who is currently pre-law or pre-graduate school that is interested in international space law and policy? Read a lot and allow that reading to include technology subjects. Um, make sure you've had at least a basic sequence of science. Don't run from something beyond basic mathematics. Uh, you will 
you'll need it to simply understand some of the issues that are going to be presented to you. That doesn't mean you need to be a math major or a science major. It just again means you have to not be technophobic. You have to not be afraid of the tools of technology. And since law is very much about language and the application of labels and words to situations, understand that equations and certain scientific principles are some of the words that you will need to apply to problems you'll be asked to solve in your career. So if you're pre-law undergraduate, this is your opportunity. And, you know, if some moron at Harvard Law School says that because you've got C in calculus, you're not admissible to Harvard Law, find a law school that is more sensible and you'll probably get a better education than you would have from any school that rejects you because you made sure you had some basic grounding and some key fields. <laughs> and, and for that student who did get that acceptance letter into law school or graduate school, but they're currently under the crush of all of their classwork, do you have any advice for those students still at school, but in the postgraduate sort of area? Of their so life? actually in law school, you're saying, as yes. opposed to, say, an LLM program or something. Yeah. yeah I, you know, while you're in law school, Good heavens, there is, there's an extraordinarily complicated curriculum in law school, but to the extent that you have some electives, already you should be thinking about whether you're, you're interested in the public international law side of space law, working for governments, uh, working perhaps for international institutions, or whether you're interested in this emerging commercial side of space law. And that becomes critical because if the latter is the case, maybe you want more than just the introduction to contracts because you're going to be spending an awful lot of time looking at contracts in a field where they've never been drawn before. So you know, I did, I did a talk at one point to one of the Manfred Locks dinners you know, on where no person has gone before. And it really was about the reality that a lot of space law is brand new every year because we're interpreting principles or solving commercial problems that just haven't been presented before. And so think about some of the elements that you will need to master to not only bring an insight into space law, but also to recognize that space is becoming more and more of a business for more and more potential clients. And you need to be able to provide competent advice in a context of what will become increasingly banal commercial transactions with anything but banal implications technologically and um, maybe even politically. And speaking of that dinner that you spoke at, do you remember when you and I first met? Well, you know, I I, I was thinking about that, and I, I think, I mean, I, I remember it being in the context of space law moot court. And Yes, uh, I was at that dinner. I was at okay. that dinner, and I listened to that speech. <laughs> And I, I entered law school as one of those sort of true believers in space law and policy. And I was like, well, yes, if he says that there's a future in this, then I made the right choice. And given that there are a fair number of folks in your field that are finding work, that 
that is that is um, I think still still true and if Sir Richard is correct that he's actually going to fly commercially for the first space tourists in 2019, the fact that human beings are getting five minutes of black space and curvature of the Earth for a price that is affordable to more people than some people care to admit is going to re-stimulate an interest in doing things in space and good heavens. Once you put people in an environment, lawyers have to be there. <laughs> and that's, you know, it's it's not exactly the old joke that there was a poor lawyer in a Midwestern town that nearly starved to death until a second lawyer moved in. But uh, it 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 there is a reality that human beings have found the legal profession extraordinarily useful and, of course, occasionally humorous um, uh, simply because. Human beings seem to have an intellect that engages in conflict, and those conflicts have to be resolved. And what most people don't realize is the vast majority of them are resolved without having to have a court decision. They're resolved by people who find a way to negotiate a um, agreement or a settlement, and that's that's going to be true in space, too. There's going to be... A lot of people with a lot of a uh, lot of commercial interests that are going to bristle because somebody did something that made their life harder, and you know both sides will have their story. And at its best, the legal profession is designed to have both sides of the story heard and a decision made. And then for. Last question, what advice would you give to somebody who has already graduated from law school or graduate school, young professionals who have already started working out in the field, but maybe they didn't take that time back in school to focus any of their classes or activities on the space law field? They want to make a transition into this subject. Well, you know, I think... They, they really need to do a little bit of soul searching about where in the field they would like to get involved. Uh, they might want to take a look at what they're already really good at and then think about where in the space community that kind of skill could be useful. Because it might mean that what they do is they take a position that is not completely focused on space law in one of the firms that have been active in space law and that and that that then leads them with the help of their uh, more senior colleagues uh, maybe some of the partners of the firm to make the transition into space law and that that is part of the recognition that one should keep in mind that sometime in the Oh, good heavens. Sometime in the mid-60s, I got the word from my doctor that I was uh, over six foot tall and like every hope of being an astronaut went away. And I never lost the interest in space, but I sort of lost the hope, if you will, that I might get involved in it. But that I kept getting bid back by various things, even a little bit in the Navy. Uh, I, I, I got bid back to be interested in some space impact. And eventually I found my way into a career that 
has been very involved in space since 2004 and but didn't enter as you know didn't enter as a real rookie because I stayed stayed in touch with the stayed in touch with the field and even in the study of international law I had found this niche of space law intriguing because it was an area that hadn't had any case law and was still impacting behavior and so for people who are looking to reposition first shop around to see who 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 is actually doing space law and and maybe other forms of law and remember that ultimately what a firm wanting counsel in space law needs at the very basic is a very good lawyer who understands space law and so it's not enough to just enjoy the space law you need to be a good lawyer as well a person who can really think through some of these issues who knows how to interpret legal research and who is capable of recognizing that last year's understanding is probably not equal to next year's need and permanent learners are the best lawyers and i think that is a great encapsulation of advice to give to people constantly be learning something new because it's always going to benefit at least yourself if not your career and your future clients yep I, I i agree with that i've seen a lot of people making that work in the space community so but people that are living on yesterday's knowledge are not not doing as well as they want to all right well michael thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today well i thank you for uh, this interesting podcast idea i think astro esquire is a great idea and uh, one can hope that you not only have people interested in the law itself listening to you, but eventually uh, those that simply have to deal with lawyers. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, I, it's as hard for an engineer to deal with a lawyer as it is for a lawyer to deal with an engineer. I often say that one of the reasons we've maintained peace in the uh, space sector is because engineers and lawyers have discovered how to make peace with each other. And that's, uh, <laughs> that's, that's a talent that can be taken to a, a scalable dimension. listening to the Astro Esquire podcast. For more information about this episode, visit our website at astroesq.com and check out our Patreon page to subscribe for access to bonus content. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, please leave us a review on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen. The Astro Esquire podcast is hosted and produced by Nathan Johnson. Our theme music was composed by Kevin Bloom. Music